Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can learn more about our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so my guest on the show today is Dr. Robert Graham. Dr. Graham is a Harvard-trained physician receiving a Master's of Public Health, and he is one of less than 20 doctor chefs worldwide as he obtained his culinary degree from the National Gourmet Institute. So you won't be surprised by Dr. Graham's primary message, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. In 2010, Dr. Graham was featured in the Wall Street Journal in an article entitled Teaching Healthy Ways to Doctors in the Kitchen. Since then, he has taught over 200 healthcare workers, mostly medical residents, how to prepare healthy and delicious plant-based meals. In June 2012, Rob birthed the Lennox Chill Initiative with a mission to bring yoga and meditation into the hospital setting to offer healthcare workers tools to better manage work-related stressors and positively impact their health and wellness. And in 2013, Dr. Graham created Victory Greens, the first educational and edible rooftop garden at a hospital in New York City. The Lenox Hill Hospital cafeteria and patients have been eating the fruits of his labor ever since. So on the show, Rob and I talk about the opportunity that COVID provides to have a public initiative for healthy food. We talk about the farm bill, food deserts, the SNAP program, the detrimental impact of sugar, the alarming rates of chronic disease, and how we can build partnerships between the private sector, insurance providers, and physicians to medicalize healthy food. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Robert Graham. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Okay, Dr. Robert Graham, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure, man. Um, all right, so there is a lot of ground to cover. Uh, that I'm confident will will interest many of the listeners. Um, certainly, the pandemic, COVID-19, has thrust public health onto the global stage uh, like never before. And, and I suppose in many ways, the disease has put a microscope to many of our underlying pre-existing health conditions. Um, I suppose because of its disproportionate impact on people with comorbidities. Um, and I think this has revealed a very diseased society, at least here in the United States. Um, and perhaps we can talk about that a little bit. But, you know, the rates of chronic disease have skyrocketed. I think there are some almost 40 million people with diabetes. For 10% of the population, there's another 100 million or so that are pre-diabetic. Uh, the last time I looked at obesity rates in the United States, they were hovering around 42 to 43%. Um, but, you know, of course, 
these are the issues that you've been calling attention to your entire career, not just since sort of the onset of COVID. And it seems like the consistent theme of a lot of your work rests upon this interrelationship between food and health um, or, or food as medicine. And I'll, I'll just say you hold a rare distinction in the world as one of uh, the 20 doctor chefs um, globally. And of course, you're a Harvard-trained physician, but I believe in 2018, you also obtained your culinary degree from the Nat- Natural Gourmet Institute. So with that uh, preamble, maybe you could begin with uh buttressing the conversation with some background around the genesis of your interest in food as medicine. And and perhaps as part of that, you could describe your kind of fresh model approach to to healthcare. Sure. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for this uh, incredible opportunity. And uh, yeah, you know, if I could start off a little bit, just talking about COVID a little bit, because I think that's the, the big the big elephant, really, you know, and unfortunately, I call it with two pandemics meet, really, there was mm-hmm. a pandemic already happening uh, with chronic diseases and driven mostly by obesity. And then obviously, COVID-19 affecting many, uh, really a, a global phenomenon, right, a global pandemic, um, affecting people who have these comorbid conditions, particularly obesity, you know, and over the past 11 months, since we started to see the uh, effects of COVID, and who is at risk, it's exactly the same people that we've been trying to bend the curve on the uh, chronic disease model, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, just some data, you know, if you're obese, you're 75% more likely to end, on a, end up in an ICU. Uh, you're, and, you're 50% more likely to die from severe COVID, you know? And I think this, these are things that have been uh, discussed for many, many decades, but this has just kind of put a magnifying glass on it all. Um, and so I think this is a time that we really realize that BMI is the strongest predictor for COVID. And so if we're going to get out of this, and I hope the silver lining of this terrible pandemic is that we start taking care of ourselves a little bit better and uh, starts with self-care, but then also changing how healthcare is delivered. Um, and so that leads to why I think uh, we need a fresh start. And my company is called Fresh Medicine. Uh, you know, for over 20 years, I've been a physician. And uh, I realized that the foundations of good medicine, it starts with self-care. Um, and I, I think self-care is not selfish. And unfortunately, many of what we consider healthcare is really medicine. Um, uh, there's no such thing as healthcare. And Fresh is an acronym for what I call the five ingredients in your recipe to health. As you mentioned, I'm a chef, so it's kind of a pun on words. Um, It's food, relaxation, exercise, sleep, and (laughs) happiness. Um, And that's where it starts, you know. And unfortunately, many of the traditional uh, belief systems and practices, uh, traditional medicine practices, you know, start with that very similar question of what do you eat? And unfortunately, healthcare has kind of abandoned that discussion. Um, And so my goal is really just to be the linker of both medicine and the culinary arts. And uh, being holding a, a, a dual title of a doctor and a chef has been a pretty cool uh, road. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, have you experienced any frustration or, or around 
the potential missed opportunity that we have right now, just because the public discourse is is very centered around, uh, really very centered around the vaccine, and obviously the vaccine is a is a is a marvel of, of medical science and um, and from the evidence that we have thus far through the clinical trials and in the early administration of the vaccine, it seems to be highly effective. Um, but at the same time, there really hasn't been this public initiative for health that, you know, that we really could be talking about, you know, right now. And, and certainly you see, you know, some doctors talk about vitamin D, um, and some other therapies, but, you know, obviously the, the big dollars and the big energy was invested in the vaccine and not really antivirals or therapeutics, but really also just the opportunity that we had to say, like, listen, like you said, you know, you're 50% more likely to die if you're, uh, from, from aggressive COVID, you know, if you are obese, and to be honest, a lot of those obesity cuts around kind of socioeconomic class and by extension, you know, by race. And, you know, you look at, at you know, inner cities and, and also rural areas that are just food deserts where, you know, you can't really get um, good food, even if you want it. And it seems like, God, if there was ever a time where we yeah. could, you know, introduce some of your ideas into the public discourse, it's, it's right now. Do you, do you feel like there's a missed opportunity or do you feel like, you know, you're cutting through? You know, I think, I think, well, listen, I, I think it came out of left field. Right. And so it was like, what is this thing? And, you know, the early days of COVID, um, particularly here, I'm in New York city. It was a zoo. It was, no one knew what to do. Everybody was in a sheer panic. Uh, I remember those days of wiping the, wiping the shopping bags, you know, yeah. um, and leaving your coats at, outside. It was just like literally le- hit it from left field. Um, but quickly we started realizing during the early days is that the people that were most vulnerable are the people that have the, the most chronic diseases and also runs down racial and ethnic disparities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think now that I feel like there's been some leveling off of the hysteria and panic because of the vaccine, I think now is the opportunity really to kind of reinvest in ourselves and bring in more of the discussion about um, how to optimize our own health. And I've always been fascinating the fact that, um, you know, our immunity, our baseline immunity resides, 80% of it resides in our gut, right? Mm. And so I think that's a beautiful, you know, I would love to go into that discussion if we have time, really, because I think the explosion of the gut microbiome and the importance in, in autoimmunity and ramping up the immune system. Again, 80% of it is in our gut and understanding how processed foods and bad foods lead to a, a bigger concept called dysbiosis, just bad life in your gut, which leads to bad metabolism, bad immunity, increased risks of uh, allergies. And so I think this is the opportunity now, now that the fact that more people are getting uh, vaccinated and that hysteria is diminishing slowly. I think now is an opportunity that people in public health should be having this conversation. Um, but it ha- to your point, it has lo- it's been a lost opportunity thus far. Yeah. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that from a kind of personal empowerment perspective. Um, 
you know, I've read statistics like when you walk into the to the supermarket, there's you know, 80 percent of the foods uh, on the shelves have have added sugar in one form or another, um, you, you know, um, and and so and then, you know, you talk about microbiome and the importance of a kind of populating the gut with with a plethora of healthy bacteria so you know maybe you could from from that place of um you could just give people some advice and some direction on how they should be you know treating themselves in this moment uh, as it pertains to food yeah so i you know one of the first things i like to say is just our food is killing us right and and for about 30 years, as food has be- foods have become more processed um, and more available anytime um, and quicker. Um, so, so we've just kind, kind of gone down this real bad road. Um, and, you know, right currently, there was a study done about two years ago in JAMA um, looking at that our diet is the number one cause of death and disability in the U.S. And globally... Mm-hmm. You know, a study published in The Lancet, one in five deaths are attributed to malnutrition. You know, and I think we're all of the same era. That malnutrition, when I was growing up, was those skinny African kids in Ethiopia, right? Right. We're just not getting any sort of nutrition. Now, malnutrition is just as bad because we've been overfed. Um, And when we go to a grocery store, um, 63% of our calories uh, come from processed foods. Only 12% come from plant-based sources, and about 25% come from animal sources. And those 25% of animal sources also, there's no, no, no understanding of the quality of animal protein as well. Um, and I think one of the things that I hope will happen, and we're starting to see this from the chef world, the culinary world that I spend half my time in, is that we're starting to see a movement to a more plant-forward or plant-based options. Not meaning being vegan or vegetarian, but again, using the power of plants, uh, particularly uh, green leafy vegetables, whole foods, um, and fiber. I think that's another important part to, to think about. We always think about um, sugar and other things, how, what to avoid. But I also think the conversation has to include what to include uh, in our diets. And I think green leafy vegetables, beans, legumes, um, as well as nuts and seeds. But we are a fiber, fiber deficient community society. Mm-hmm. And I think by in- adopting more of a plant forward, a whole food plant based diet, um, most of the time, um, I think we're going to start. That's the first step in terms of uh, self care. I think, you know, uh, I think it's really important to consider what we put in our mouths um, has an effect. Yeah, no, I've, I've looked at some of the data from China, for example, and I think obesity rates are are certainly in the single digits there. I've seen some numbers as low as two or three percent. I've seen six percent. Um, but if you look at the fatality rate um, in China, uh, it's very very low um, in comparison to the United States. And my gut, no pun intended, tells me that that that's got to be diet oriented. Yeah. Yeah, and again, you know, the whole, the whole point of, of, of what COVID does in a very rudimentary way, right, is that it explodes your inflammatory system. It overflows with cytokines and, pro, uh, and pro-inflammatory substrates. 
again, inflammation is the driver of most of our chronic diseases. Uh, so therefore, I spend a lot of time in Japan. Um, I do work in Japan. Um, and what's fascinating about Japan, um, about five years ago, their rate of obesity was 1.5%. In, in the past five to seven years, they have, tripped, they have doubled uh, to 3%, although nothing compared to what you're describing, you know, 40%, 50% obesity. But that's a doubling in five to seven years. And it's one major driver is westernization of their food system. You know, yeah. and so there's a sad joke uh, that wherever our food goes, our diseases follow. Yeah. So I th think that folks are starting to grok the scale of the problem. Um, but, but what are the different solutions? I mean, what, what different angles can we come at this from, you know, both from an education perspective, from an accessibility perspective, um, from partnerships that can be forged between physicians and the private sector and insurance providers? You know, maybe you could, I'm sure this is yeah. something that you spent a good amount of time thinking about. Yeah, I think, I think of it from like a, what I like to call it, I think this approach has to be a full stack approach. Um, and I use the word full stack coming from the digital world, right? And that um, a developer has to know the ins and outs of the entire program. Uh, and, and that's kind of the whole, that's the, in, in a very simple way, what I mean by full stack. And I think we have to think about food as a full stack approach. That, you know, our food just doesn't mag magically appear in our supermarkets, right? And thus on our plates. Um, we have to think about, you know, from the farm to the fork how it gets there. And I think we're starting to see that. Um, these conversations that I never thought I'd be part of uh, 10, 15 years ago, I'm actually being invited to the table now, right? And so I'm working with supermarket companies. I'm, I'm working with CPGs, large food vendors, uh, the people that feed you know, our schools, our prisons, our hospitals. Uh, and they're realizing, and maybe, you know, Jeff, maybe it's just monetary. You know, maybe it's not altruistic. But they're realizing that there is a, a trend for more healthier, more transparent sourcing of ingredients. But I also think that the people, that policy has to be involved. I think the culinary field has to be involved. I think chefs, uh, I think chefs have a huge role to play in this food as medicine movement. Um, and again, you know, you travel a lot, I travel a lot, and we're starting just to see that there's a lot more options out there uh, for people who have special dietary uh, requirements uh, that 10 years ago was never was never there and again it may be just driven by a financial model because we're gonna we're losing those people from a financial point of view but you know listen I, I've been talking about food as medicine for 20 years and by any means necessary that if we can start adopting that in terms of a uh, what the average uh, person consumes but I also think another really important part and I'm sorry to be kind of belaboring this point but without scaling it uh, my goal is really offering healthy food as a uh, insurance benefit, right? And so instead of giving a pill, you can actually give a drug. I mean, I'm sorry. Instead of giving a drug, you can give medicine. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Instead of uh, drug yeah. or medicine, you give food. <laughs> I, I, I'm following you all the uh, way. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that a little bit because um, – you know, in some of my research, I actually wrote a, a, a paper last summer called The Other Epidemic, which is very much what we're discussing here, sort of the epidemic that, that 
uh, kind of undergirds the the, the global COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, and one of the programs that I discovered at that point, I think, was called the, the the Fruit and Veggies Prescription Program. I think it's called FBR FVRX, and uh, I think I sent you a note about it at one point. Yeah. Um, so, can you talk about programs like that? And then, uh, you know, I know you're spearheading a partnership between private enterprise and and insurance provider, which I believe is in a trial phase in Florida, which sort of medicalizes. Um, healthy food, you know, with, with prescription. So maybe you could unpack a, a few of these programs that exist out there as models that could scale. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I having sitting in this unique space between food and health has uh, allowed me the opportunity to really work with many innovative companies who have really changed, change how we feed people. Um, and Chef Michelle Nishan uh, was the founder of this Wholesome Wave uh, program you're talking about. Um, again, it was, it's, it's fascinating, right? It's giving um, health bucks to people who shop at farmer's markets, uh, particularly who, have, who rely on um, government assistance funds for their foods. And so the idea is that you get two, for three, two or three bucks for every fruit or vegetable you buy at a farmer's market using uh, federal dollars, uh, really great initiative, and it's a national-wide initiative. And again, see, that's where he doesn't have a master's, in, uh, you know, he doesn't have an MPH, he's not a doctor, but he's a chef, right? And that has really been an amazing opportunity uh, to, to be friends with him and also see where that has gone. Um, hospitals, uh, just by way of background, you know, I've always thought that that was one of the greatest ironies, right? That they serve probably the worst food Awful. You could ever eat. <laughs> yeah. But yet you're in a hospital. Um, and actually the same sort of foods that bring you into a hospital, they feed you in the hospital. And so probably about seven years ago, uh, here in New York City at Lenoxville Hospital, I started the first ever rooftop farm uh, where we made this kind of bold initiative from ro- rooftop to bedside. Uh, hmm. And it was a great initiative, right? And people started using the fresh produce from the rooftop into the patient's menu and the employee's menu and really kind of changing how we feed people both uh, from an employee point of view and from um, a patient point of view. Um, and that led to a couple of other initiatives. Now, now there's a new initiative by the uh, Physicians, for, uh, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine introducing a plant-based option in every single hospital um, here in the U.S. Um, really? Here in New York. I'm sorry, New York. And um, two years ago, I, was, I testified... Um, here in New City, in New York City, to ban processed meats from our school system, uh, our, our ca- school cafeterias. And it was a kind of a hashtag, ban the bologna from our schools, uh, which has been a really cool initiative. Um, and then I think the, the thing that I'm really excited about is this whole testifying in Capitol Hill, um, introducing the concept of medically tailored meals as a covered benefit for people who have chronic diseases. Um, and that's really grew out of uh, the nonprofit industries, um, both in LA and New York. Uh, there's a great nonprofit here in New York that started in the 1980s during the height of the AIDS pandemic called God's Love We Deliver mm-hmm. in LA. Uh, you know them too as both Project Angel, uh, which just amazing feeding people healthy food who need it the most. Um, and on top of that, seeing that healthcare dollars reduce, hospitals' admissions, admissions reduce, readmissions reduce, 
less reliance of medications because ultimately if you feed people the right way, medicine is of less or no need. Yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah, last week I, um, I interviewed a neuroscientist named Adam Ghazali, <clears throat> excuse me, brilliant guy who runs a, a neuroscience center at the University of California, San Francisco. And he, he explores the cross-section of meditation and mindfulness and technology. And he actually built a mindfulness-oriented video game that helps children with ADHD um, with sustained attention. And he actually worked with a number of physicians um, so to, to sort of medicalize meditation or medicalize mindfulness, but in, instead of sort of, you know, kind of putting meditation off into a sort of a cubbyhole as this kind of like Eastern religion, you know, kind of a, a inaccessible, a feat uh, practice, a doctor can actually write a script for this particular product and kids can engage with it and it feels very accessible. Um, and so I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. And so, so can you unpack like how that process works? Like how, how do you actually work with a physician or physicians to enable them to actually write a script for healthy food? Yeah. So that goes back to education, right? We, we, we do what we're taught, right? And so uh, some of my initial, initial initiatives were really teaching doctors how to cook, taking them out of a hospital, bring them into a culinary school to teach them the foundations of culinary medicine. But also, I think nutrition has to happen at the table or in the kitchen, not so much in the classroom. And so part of my initial movement uh, in building this movement called culinary medicine is teaching the found fundamentals of culinary arts to doctors. So that they can have this discussion and thus then refer to, first of all, a nutritionist, right? Because a lot of times nutritionists or dietitians are covered under people's health plans, but there's a lack of that referral. So that's the first step. Hmm. And so one of the things I started is bringing a dietitian into the medical clinic. So therefore that barrier is removed. The next part is using things, is, is education. Again, it's letting people know who have the power of a prescription. That, that this is possible. Things like Wholesome Wave, people don't realize that that's possible. Some of the initiatives that we're talking about in South Florida is that we actually can, we actually are working with an insurance company right now uh, to provide physicians the knowledge so that therefore they can prescribe these meals for their patients and their clients. Um, it's so hard, it's such a hard lift. And so- yeah trying to fit in the importance of food as medicine into the current medical curriculum is nearly impossible. Um, and so I just think you got to go upstream. And that's why my engaging with the food companies and chefs, I think, ultimately is going to be the driver of it all. And some of the studies that you alluded to are going to be the, the impetus for more insurance coverage for medically tailored meals. Yeah, I, I suppose one of the challenges is that it's so, it's so much simpler and potentially more profitable to treat the symptoms versus the root cause of of the disease that um, that you know we're caught in a bit of a catch twenty two where you know listen if we if we had patients 
um, to really address the underlying problems, um, then there, there, there's ample solutions there. But it is so simple um, for doctors to prescribe, you know, pharmaceuticals, and, and there's obviously misaligned incentives in, in, inside of there that, um, that, like you're saying, it's 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 a it's a very very dis- difficult task to scale. So, um, yeah, yeah. But I think you know so some of what what you're seeing, even you know, again, COVID. Looking at COVID, you know we're seeing the value of our essential workers, right? Our doctors and nurses. Um, Pre-pandemic, you know, one, uh, 400 doctors committed suicide every year uh, because of burnout and dissatisfaction with their job. And it's not necessarily the job. It's how we have to do the job within the conventional medical reimbursement model, right? It's all based upon volume, not value, right? And I think docs like me and others that do integrative, functional, and holistic medicine really take the time to understand uh, the patient's true cause of, or the root cause of their illness. But I think, I, I have faith, I, and I think we're almost at that point right now that um, insurance companies and also employers are realizing that the cost of care is just, it's unsustainable. And right. so something has to change. And um, I just had a conversation, I won't mention with who it was, but with a, a chief medical officer of, of a large company um, that feeds people. And he said to me, you mean I have to feed people for the rest of their lives instead of giving them the medication? And I said, no, I said, I don't think you fully understand the power of food, right? Is that if you feed them the right food, you don't need the medication on the back end of it all, right? And it was almost like this magical light bulb popped up over his head and he said oh i get it but again it's i don't think we do what we're taught and doctors are not taught the power of food as medicine you know um but this newer generation of physicians that are coming out understand the power of what we eat and how it affects our health and well-being partly because their parents are succumbing to these issues yeah and it becomes personal when it's your mom you know it becomes really personal when it's your mom your grandfather and now you're stuck going to the grocery store and saying, hey, dad, dad had a heart attack and he's diabetic. What do I feed him? You know, yeah. and education is just part of the answer. I think ultimately what we're going to have to do is bridge them with real food. Right. So here, here's the food you have to eat for the next two weeks. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you're having conversations um, at the governmental level, I think we, we both share, I think, a common friend, Congressman Tim Ryan, who uh, wrote a book called, I believe it's called The Real Food Revolution. But, you know, it, it addresses a lot of the ways that government can play a role in in helping to sort of bend the arc of the food system. Certainly, there's the Farm Bill, uh, which is a a significant piece of, of legislation that gets renewed, you know, every five to 10 years or so. Um, it, it, it tends to provide subsidies for, for big ag, which allows them to more or less create or, or, or plant cash crops and sell them below the true cost of production, which subsidizes big foods ability to, you know, make 44 ounce big gulps with, you know, 70 grams of sugar in it. Um, 
and and so obviously I think that there's a lot to do um, there within inside of the farm bill to you know in- incentivize you know organic growers, organic farms. Obviously, there's also the SNAP program, which is you know more or less food stamps, and mm-hmm. I know that there's been an effort to try to make SNAP redeemable online because oftentimes if you live in a food desert and you have your food stamps, all you, the only place you can shop is a, your local bodega, which is basically full of, of pop and soda and, and cookies and, and chips, etc. So the ability to actually redeem your SNAP online um, allows some of these more healthy delivery food options uh, open up. Um, so there seems to be getting, there's some traction there. There's obviously now, uh, an efflorescent movement around regenerative farming, um, that, that could certainly, you know, use a boost, but has not only tremendous connection to healthy food, but also to the sequestration of carbon and addresses our climate change issues. So all of these issues are, are interrelated and I wonder, what you see the role of government is here and if you've been having any conversations that are getting traction there at that level. Yeah, I think, I think you're going right back to what I mentioned before. It has to be the whole full stack approach, right? Like we got, have to have policy. We have to have the insurance companies. We have to have agriculture. We'll have to have CPGs. We have to have food companies. We have to have medicine. Everybody has to come to the table, right, for this to really happen. And I think, you know, the farm bill is a perfect example. Um, it's fat, right? It's, there's a lot of stuff in that farm bill. Um, my particular interest in the farm bill is really looking at, you know, like what you mentioned, uh, Wholesome Wave and, and SNAP programs uh, to feed people who can't afford the healthiest of foods, uh, a better option or more opportunity to buy them. Um, I think the online thing you mentioned, um, I think it's going to pass. I think it's, that's, that's, that has real, has real legs. Um, but I think the other important part to really consider is um, one thing my mom always says, and she's, she's, she's an immigrant, right? And she says, don't wait for the government to give you this stuff, right? You start doing it. Um, you know, eventually they'll catch up. But, you know, I think we have to be the power. Um, and my dad is funny. I, I often I say that I'm a son of a farmer and a son, son of an immigrant. And that's why I think that <laughs> immigrant mentality and the farmer mentality is resilient, you know, and you just keep on going, keep on going. And part of it, I think most people realize that it's the right thing to do. Um, and it, it, there comes a point in time that, you know, this intersection between food and health, as I mentioned before, becomes real, you know, um, and, and we need policy and we need government. Um, and so, yeah, I've been down to, to Capitol Hill twice um, to talk about this. Um, and Tim, Tim, Tim Ryan is an amazing supporter of, of this movement. But the other guy I think is really fascinating is Tim McGovern. Um, he's Jim McGovern, I'm sorry, Jim McGovern, uh, from Massachusetts. Um, he's really pushing this movement of medically tailored meals. Um, mm. there's about $8 billion going into medically tailored meals in the next farm bill. Um, and so if there's any food companies out there right now, right, think about looking at that farm bill and what, what a medically tailored meal entails. Um, because I think those, if we, as in culinary school, you learn a, a term called mesen plus means put in place. If we start thinking about how we can optimize and utilize that government money in the field, in the world of medically tailored meals now, when it passes, we're just ahead of the game. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, I work with a company called Performance Kitchen, uh, who we've actually tried to change the entire 
their entire line of meals into medically tailored meals. So therefore, it's nutrition for your medical condition, uh, which I think we're, we're, we're just, we're, you know, we're ready. We're ready. As soon as that farm bill hits, these food companies are going to, you know, hopefully be part of that first wave of funding that comes through. Yeah. Uh, I wonder also just at the medical school level, um, you know, obviously there's a generation of, of, of physicians who are trained in traditional conventional allopathic medicine. Uh, are you seeing that this in this next wave uh, of uh, or this next generation of doctors who are in med school now is has, is the curriculum kind of broadened or, or opened the aperture a bit to notions of food as medicine, or, or is it still pretty conventional? You know, it's it's just like every, every, every you have kids, right? Every every educational system is rooted in the current dogma, right? And yeah. so, therefore, for something to be added to a curriculum, um, something has to be taken out, right? And the way the pressures of how our current educational, medical educational system works, and I, and I would say to a larger extent, how our entire educational system works, um, there's just no room for new stuff to go in without pulling something important out. And so to your question, no. So to my knowledge, um, there is this lip service that many medical schools uh, offer. But it's all electives, it's selectives. Um, even when I was program director for an internal medicine residency program, my culinary medicine program was an elective. Um, but we're starting to see more penetration in terms of these electives happening in our graduate medical education courses. What's really sad, you know, is that you have gastroenterologists, cardiologists, immunologists, uh, but particularly gastroenterologists and cardiologists and endocrinologists, let's call that, right? They deal with these chronic diseases where food can be medicine, but yet there is absolutely zero hours of nutrition training in postgraduate mm -hmm. medical education. So your cardiologists, your endocrinologists, and your gastroenterologists have no nutrition education requirements in their graduate medical education. That's absurd. Yeah. In medical school, there is yeah. two hours required, and yeah. only twenty-five percent of medical schools satisfy those two hours of me of requirement for medical education. So it's a broken system, you know. It's just a completely broken system, and we get the results of that in our healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, certainly you're, you're a very social and gregarious, likable. <laughs> um, fellow who, who must have a lot of friends, um, both inside and outside of the medical community. And I, I wonder if, you know, you, you were feeling almost just anecdotally inside your network of physicians. Did you guys talk about this stuff? I mean, and, and is there sort of gaining momentum uh, within certainly within functional medicine circles, I, I imagine there is, but just even on the outside of that circle with more traditional doctors, are you feeling like you're speaking at least some of the same language with your colleagues? Yeah, well, listen, I think part, uh, the proof is in the pudding, right? And we're starting to see. So I, I, I was one of the very first fellows um, to do a fellowship in integrative medicine, right? And integrative medicine is, is an evolving term. Um, and it really looks at the totality of evidence 
for everything that is out there, right? Both mm. conventional and non-conventional. Um, and I think the number one thing that I use in my practice is food. Um, but I think the power of meditation is, is equally, if not more important, um, exercise, sleep, and happiness, right? That's, again, that's a fresh kind of model. What I am seeing is that there is now, uh, about five years ago, I became board certified in integrative medicine. And so I did a three-year fellowship, and we're starting to see more fellowships similar to cardiology, gastroenterology, and all the ologists that are out there in integrative medicine popping up in academic medical centers. Hmm. It's a little different than functional medicine, right? But yeah. you're starting to see that there is board certification, which is really you know independent stamp of approval for the authenticity and the scholarly activities that fall within the realm of integrative medicine. So that's good, right? So when you're getting more doctors that are board certified in integrative medicine in these large academic medical settings. And we're also seeing centers for integrative medicine in and within these large academic centers. So there is a movement um, of the enlightened, I call them, right? Um, mm -hmm. That really want to incorporate this into a model of care. But I think, you know, um, there is a movement that's happening. And I think it's, from personal experience that these kids are that are graduating out of medical school and, you know, in their, in their twenties, uh, to become a doctor, they're realizing, they're realizing that, you know, medicine takes us, Oh, yet so far. Right. And if it truly worked as surgery works for a broken arm, we wouldn't be in a mess we are in today. Right. And so these chronic diseases are multifactorial and you do need a multifactorial uh, all hands on deck approach. And, you know, no physician, even me, I can't do this alone, right? So I have a clinical nutritionist, I have, you know, health coaches, I have a team of people that can fill in the gaps where I just don't simply have the knowledge and or time to really give that holistic picture that I think more people want in today's healthcare. Yeah. Um, in terms of actually, creating a body of, of data uh I, I wonder where where the medical world is in relationship to food and, and i guess you know my point of reference is with meditation and mindfulness there are a lot of really evidence-based studies now coming out of harvard university of virginia university of louisville that have you know done wisconsin that have done you know, deep dives into the, the psychological and physiological impacts of regular meditation. Um, and, you know, this relatively, you know, strange practice that's 2,500 years old, you know, um, now seems to be actually rooted in, in scientific evidence as, as, as you know, many labs across the country are, are hooking people up to you know fMRIs and, and whatnot, and and I wonder if there are, is are the same kind of clinical trials being run um, for food to provide you with the studies and the evidence yeah. that you can hold up and say, hey, look, listen, this has real proven results. Yeah. So great question, and um, it's a it's a very important question for a very small part of our society, right? Um, and mostly it's the academics 
um, but also the insurance companies, right? They, they yeah. fall in line with what the evidence says. Um, I just got to tell you a quick story. So when I did my fellowship in Harvard in 2003 to 2006, um, um, actually, that's where I met Mark, Mark Hyman, uh, in 2004, um, mm-hmm. when he was up in Canyon Ranch. And um, I was privy to the study, that first ever study uh, that Richie Davidson did at the University of Wisconsin with MGH at Harvard, looking at uh, the effects of the meditating mind and that left frontal lobe lit up like a, like a candle. And it was one of those, every time I told the story, you'd get chills because it was the proof that, you know, 2,500 to 4,000 years ago, they've been saying, you know, and so now it's scientific proof. So now it's real, right? right? <laughs> it's real. Uh, but then I would, I would push back a little bit because when's the last time your doctor prescribed meditation for you, right? And that's, you know, to the listeners out there, when's the last time a doctor prescribed food or exercise or sleep, you know, uh, or happiness to you? Um, and so that's, that's the first step, right? To get the evidence of its utility. And that's the meditation model, right? But if you go to the Food as Medicine Coalition, um, which is an amazing website, uh, there has been over a dozen studies looking at the use of food as medicine, giving people food, not education, and how it affects both, again, burden of disease, healthcare costs, readmissions, and so it's out there. Hmm. But the problem is there's a lot of evidence. And in today's world, um, everyone, like you said, everyone's a public health expert in today's world. Um, some of us do have MPHs, right, who, make, who understands the literature. So there's a lot of evidence out there. But are people listening? Are people reading them? Um, and again, the way medical school is taught, um, there's just no room for it. But again, the, what I've been doing in the last five years is really trying to go upstream and speaking to health insurance companies and showing, number one, that there is an evidence base for its utility. Um, and that's why I'm really proud about this kind of the couple of pilots that we're doing. And we're just one of the soldiers in this movement um, because there are a lot of other nonprofits that have shown that it is actually saves money, improves lives, reduces healthcare costs, you know, and improves health. Um, for me, that's the holy grail, right? Um, but one of the things that is really important when you start considering any sort of trial when it comes to food, I think we have to remember that. Um, the food has to be convenient, affordable, tasty, and sustainable. And finding a company that hits those, th- those four benchmarks for me uh, to align myself with really um, is the holy grail. Um, and, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have that opportunity. But I also think that the insurance companies are focused in today's world more about the social determinants of health looking at through the lens of racial and ethnic disparities, health disparities mm. and healthcare disparities. And so if we go in there and we offer them food to solve the basic prom, uh, principle of food insecurity, that's a win. Now, on top of that, if we offer them food that actually improves their health outcomes and reduces their healthcare costs, that's, that's, that's magic, you know? Um, and I think in the next three to five years, you're going to start seeing some of these studies, um, larger studies, um, in ethnic, racial and ethnic communities, uh, because that's something important to consider as well. Um, although some of us like kale, some of us hate kale. <laughs> but if we're going to start, start feeding people uh, food, it has to be what I call 
culinary diverse. People have to eat the foods that are authentic, familiar, comfortable, and traditional to their palates. Um, and one of the pilots that we're doing in South Florida, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a, more of a Cuban population. So as a chef, I go and design meals that are Cuban inspired. In Texas, we, we produce Southwest or Tex-Mex flavors. Um, and I think that's really important if we're going to scale this to, you know, to everyone in, in America, just not, you know, the people that can afford, you know, kale and quinoa. Yeah. How do you treat big food? I mean, you know, companies like McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, who populate virtually every block of, of these food deserts um, and who seem to externalize all of their costs. You know, they're able to serve a $1.99 Happy Meal you know, with French fries and a large Coke, largely because they're not paying for the ramifications or the implications of that meal. They don't see a bill for anybody's healthcare costs. They don't see um, a, a bill for, you know, anybody's prescriptions or, you know, how, how all of the costs, and not to mention all of the environmental degradation that's connected to that. So, in your mind, do we try to work with these companies um, or are these companies essentially, you know, the devil and that we need to do whatever we can to sort of eradicate them? <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's a, it's, a, it's a great question that, you know, uh, the great Marion Nestle struggles with every day. And, uh, you know, she kind of falls in the camp that don't talk to the devil, right? Um, you know, but then I have people that I've, come to know like Walter Willett, who says that we have to meet them somewhere, you know? Um, and I do, I think, again, going back to the point I was saying is that whatever the method of, of change, if it's financial for them, um, I think they're, they're, you're starting to see that, you know, uh, we can go a whole another conversation about, you know, alternative sources of meat, right? But you're starting to see more quote unquote, I don't know how healthy it is, but more quote unquote right. healthier options, more plant-based options in the Wendy's and, and Burger Kings and McDonald's. Uh, but also starting to see that the larger chains like the Chili's and the Applebee's are, are going out of business. Um, and so I think there's market trends that are happening that, um, that they are now talking to people like me on how to develop healthier options for their clientele. Um, but I think that together we're stronger. I don't think that, that if we just keep them in the corner that we're going to get anywhere. So um, I am hopeful that um, I continue to have more and more conversations with uh, Big Food. Um, and also I think with Big Pharma, I think Big Pharma has a play, has a role to play that hasn't really been discussed. Um, and so I think, I, I think everybody has to come to the table for this to really happen. Yeah. You know, I, attended a conference for many, many years in, in Anaheim every March called the Natural Foods Expo. Uh, yep. It's also known as Expo West. And right. when I first started going, you know, there was a very large conference space that was full and it was, you know, a significant conference. And then I think I went, well, not last year, but maybe two years ago. And there's 80,000 people there. And, um, and it's almost like a venture capital conference at this juncture because there's so much, uh, there's so much money going into 
quote unquote natural foods and organic foods. And I think, you know, we run the risk, uh, obviously, of, of sort of the, the food version of greenwashing um, with, with some of these companies. As I look at the sugar content in, in a quote unquote health bar, um, yeah. and it, it's not impressive. Um, but that is to say that there seems to be increasingly a, an alignment between financial interests and, and health. Um, and, you know, the degree to which we can, you know, support the best manifestations of that, you know, great. But I yeah. think that, that you should be giving the, the keynote address at that conference <laughs> because, um, you know, it, it is filled with a lot of people that have, I think, very positive intentions, um, but they need, I think, guidance around the, the actual nutrition component of it. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think that last part is really important. Um, in today's kind of atmosphere, uh, you know, I went to school for a long time. You know, I, 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 went to, I, I went to school for a long time. And I think, you know, credentials and degrees matter when you're having these high level conversations. You know, um, I love the, the, the power of the people um, who have large platforms in pushing these ideas. Um, but to have a seat at the table with these large companies, um, I think you need people that have deep knowledge of um, both, you know, what's happening in the real world, but also uh, understanding the evidence and understanding the science behind it all. Uh, and I think we're starting to see that consumers are expecting more from their food than just cheap calories, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and Expo West is a perfect example of it, right? Um, I remember, you know, just in my, you know, I'm, I'm 49 years old, and I just remember shopping. And, you know, it was like, these foods are good for you, right? Right? And, and these <laughs> are better for you. But then you started to hear about, you know, maybe 10 years ago, the movement of, you know, functional foods you know, talking about phytonutrients and how to optimize it. But I think the next movement is really uh, from the retail segment is revamping how people shop, going back to your first point, you know, how supermarkets, supermarkets have changed. And I think COVID has changed it, mm -hmm. right? People are not spending hours in supermarkets anymore. And this is some of the work I'm doing in Japan, revamping the actual, what a supermarket offers. Um, and so, one of the things that, that we're discussing is how to have a section of the supermarket that is truly food as medicine. And so you cool. go to that section and it's all healthy, similar to Expo West, right? There's two, there's two camps, right? The healthy people and then the junk people or, or the cheap calorie people. Um, and you're starting to see the explosion of that. And um, in California, you're seeing some of the movements of, you know, a section of the grocery store chain of the grocery store that are uh, pack and go, to go, or meal, uh, meal deliveries, or things that are more functional and more healthier under the rubric of food as medicine. I think that's gonna be the next movement when you go shopping. Um, and you're gonna find boxes that are you know, pre-made, you know, here's your Mexican dinner, all mm. the ingredients you need for Mexican dinners. Here's your ingredients for a healthy Italian dinner. I don't think that over the next three to five years, we're gonna be spending these large legacy grocery stores are, are going to shift. And, and if you don't, I think you're just going to be left behind. Yeah, that's interesting. Almost kind of the, the delivery box model, but at retail. And at retail. Uh, yeah, I can only laugh because um, 
but I, I, I used to go to this stop and shop up in Connecticut. And just like you said, that there was this sort of healthy food section that was kind of, you were banished into Northern Saskatchewan or something, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, off into the corner. And, um, you know, that's where we would go. And, and, and over the years, you know, I, I certainly have seen that, that section, um, you know, grow in, in prominence. Um, which is a good thing. Uh, so I, yeah, I just love to conclude w- with just something more personal with you. I mean, I wonder, you know, you must, I know you're, you're a chef, so you're probably cooking all the time anyways. I'm curious if COVID um, has, uh, has e- even incre- increased the volume of, of your cooking even more. And, and what are the things that you are kind of, you know, cooking at this time and, and what are you doing in the kitchen on a on a daily basis? Yeah, that's another civil lining. I, you know, Hunter uh, here in New York did a study. Uh, Hunter Food Policy uh, did a study looking at how sh- how COVID has shifted behaviors. And guess what? Fifty four percent of people are cooking more, um, and fifty eight percent of people yeah. are are cooking more, but then also eating with their families. Uh, so that's beautiful. I mm. think you know. I was fortunate enough to be raised in a, in a in a home where my mom cooked from scratch every single night. You know, um, which again, you know, goes back to our roots. You know, most most immigrant families don't have the means to go out and eat all the time, so they cook. Um, and as we become more culturized, we become become less healthy. Um, at home, we keep a vegan home, um, and at times we may go out and dabble in non-vegan food. But at home, we are. Uh, predominantly plant-based, a uh, whole food plant-based at home. Uh, we've been cooking more than ever now. Um, didn't jump onto the whole baking thing. Um, I think I'm more of a savory chef than a baker. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's too prescriptive for me. Um, mm-hmm. And if you mess it up, you can't fix it. So that's something I don't like about baking. But yeah, it's been, it's, it's been, it's been uh, and it's been great just hanging out more with my wife that, you know, we live very busy lives and it's, uh, it's given us the opportunity to pause, uh, and uh, get outside every single day. We, we take, we joke around, we take like, you know, retirement walks. We walk for an hour and a half every single day through the park. <laughs> so there's a certain part of it feels like we're, yeah. you know, retired. Um, but I'm fortunate enough that, you know, uh, I still see patients, you know, uh, two days a week here in New York um, and uh, still consult with food companies. And Jeff, you know, I'll tell you, you know, a lot of these food companies where uh, you never thought I would ha- be having these conversations. Uh, they're inviting me to the table, so I think change is going to happen. Um, but it, again, has to has to be part of a whole kind of wellness package. Um, and and companies are interested in you know obviously the entry in my world and in fresh is food, um, but it's about holistic healthcare, right? It's about taking care of thyself from the whole picture, just not. Um, uh, just one food. Uh, some of my best friends are just so obsessed by, by their keto diet that they drive themselves crazy. Or the yeah. vegans too, right? And I just think there has to be a balance. Um, and that's really the, the perspective that we try to give at Fresh and how I always speak that we should be incorporating things that we love, not eliminating things that we hate. You know, And I think that's where a lot of nutrition education has failed is that we know what's bad. I think it's time now that we focus on what's good. And I think in, hum- in humanity and in, in the world, there's a lot more things that bring us together than tear us apart. And I think nutrition has been one of those camps. Uh, beans are bad. Bread is bad. Meat is bad. Dairy is bad. 
legumes are bad. You know, like who else is the bad guy nowadays? What else is going to be the bad guy? <laughs> Sugar is bad, right? Sugar is bad. And I think we just have to find a unifying message that, you know, that's, this is one of my prescriptions, you know, eat more plants. That's, that's how simple it yeah. is. Um, and I think we start doing that, we're going to start seeing a, a cascade of, of hopefully a healthier society and less COVID. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Robert Graham. To keep abreast of Rob and his work, go to freshmednyc.com. And you can always email me directly with thoughts or comments at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read every email. And that's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>